please enjoy this presentation of the CUTV and Friends podcast. This podcast is a collaboration between California University Television, Cal Times Newspaper, and WCAL Radio. Welcome to another edition of Conversation With. I'm your host, Gary Smith, and today we're going to have a conversation with history. And what better person to bring on to talk about history and local history is my good friend, Mark Henshaw, archaeologist, historian, and probably most importantly for this conversation, Brownsville Catholic Class of 1990, along with me. So, Mark, uh, welcome uh, once again from your home in Michigan. How's uh, everything going in the Mitten State? Everything's going really well. Uh, the pandemic has me kind of bored, but... Uh... Field work's going to start going again, and hopefully we'll get back out in the field and start digging uh, as soon as we can. Uh, I'm tired of snow. I want to be out on a motorcycle. Don't want to be riding a snowblower instead of uh, the bike. You know what I mean? Yeah, when, so, uh, me, when me and Mark were setting this up, we were hoping that maybe the weather would be good enough that he could be on a GoPro on his motorcycle for this interview. But uh, unfortunately, Michigan, as is Pennsylvania, the day we shoot this is still a little soggy and cold. But uh, maybe maybe whenever we talk next time, it'll be, it'll be warm enough. Um, I hope. But let's start with uh, the genesis of this conversation is uh, Mark and I, and like pretty much everyone on earth, is online a lot and uh, members of several Facebook groups. And we're members of uh, the Brownsville Facebook group. And there was a couple things posted um, from historical sites that were a little inaccurate about uh, the steamboat history in Brownsville. And uh, Mark, as he'll explain in a second, is probably one of the top five experts in the world on uh, steamboats in Brownsville. Actually, for steamboats in Brownsville, Mark, probably number one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> steamboats in general, you're probably top five. So, uh, Mark, I'll, I'll let you run with the ball and um, just explain what some of the things the inaccuracies were and, and how we're going to just educate everybody and what the actual um, the facts are. Great. Uh, so, yeah, there was this blog post that was uh, produced by the National Road. Um, and I understand that uh, they don't have uh, the ability to have all the details on, on writing the complete history of the Brownsville steamboat industry or – the ability to do massive amounts of research into that industry and, and present it. But there were some inaccuracies that I just wanted to, uh, to address. And by doing that, I think we can actually learn something about the significance of Brownsville itself um, in the role of Western expansion. Uh, you know, our city, our town, I should say, <laughs> was at one time at the forefront of the Western frontier. Uh, you can stand on the banks of the Monongahela River and really not know or, you know, maybe have some idea of what's on the other side, who lived over there. Uh, you know, and so Brownsville was this jumping off point uh, all the way back, even during the uh, French and Indian War in the 1750s. Um, boats were being constructed uh, by Redstone and, you know, flat boats, uh, bateaux, uh, things of that nature for transportation to get to Pittsburgh. And so, Brownsville really was this hub. And so in order to talk about the steamboat industry, we have to understand why it propped up in Brownsville, why this was such an important area. And, and Brownsville really had all the markings of something that was going to be greater than itself. Okay. It was at the end of the National Road, the end of the Nemecolon Trail. Um, if you wanted to get west, you had to come through Brownsville. If you were an immigrant from Philadelphia, Connecticut, where have you, ultimately you landed yourself on the National Road. 
And so that dumping off point was Brownsville. And all the way back into the 1780s, there were reports of immigrants weathering the winter, uh, deep snows in their little shelters, um, lined up from Brownsville to Uniontown, uh, waiting for the snow to melt and the freshets to set in so that they could pick up a, a flatboat in Brownsville and head west. Um, and th so these were really people that were, that were hardy. They were trying to make a better life for themselves outside the city um, of Philadelphia and those urban areas. And uh, the West offered a lot, a lot of uh, opportunity for them to do that, uh, freedom, so to speak. But that freedom started with getting the boat, and getting the boat took a long time. Um, some of the first industries in Brownsville were sawmills, um, and naturally with sawmills came boat building. Mm -hmm. And so you'd wait six, seven weeks, longer, month maybe, two months, for your flatboat to get ready that uh, you had commissioned or that you were going in on with several other families. And so that whole uh, experience really built Brownsville up. So not only did you have, at that point, did you need flatboats and sawmills, but you also had to have industry to support all the pioneers coming through there. So foundries popped up. You need to buy your plows, you need to buy your stoves, everything you needed, your kit, so to speak, to uh, set up your, your home in the West. Get outfitted in Brownsville, right? Nail manufacturers, foundries. You had uh, all sorts of mercantile businesses. Pick up your blankets, your coats, things that uh, your provisions, right? Butchers. And so it was only a matter of time before the merchants of Brownsville decided that, hey, you know, we should really start shipping stuff. And real, quick, and real quick, Mark, before you go into uh, the next phase of your thing, sure. I just want to double back and um, just for some of our younger viewers and, and people that may not um, be from the area, because, you know, we're used to driving. You know, the, the mountains of Uniontown are really not an impediment unless it's the winter. But really, the, the Allegheny Mountains at one point, you know, you had no idea what was going to be on the other side of them. So Brownsville really was that um, cosmopolitan frontier city where if you got to there, you basically could get to New Orleans and all points west. I don't think people realize how big of a deal it was just to make that trip and get to Brownsville. It's like that, that, that golden gem of the west where you can go, go west. Yeah, you know, we never think about the lives lost on that journey. We never think about the people who died in the mountains in wintertime, uh, freezing to death. We never think about all the possible burials along the National Road of people who, who just didn't make it. Uh, they, you know, families... It was the frontier. There was nothing there. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, some of the early historians talk about the area surrounding Brownsville, uh, about the maple trees as an industry. They said maple sugar or sugar derived from maple trees uh, will compete with anything derived in the Caribbean, right? But that was an industry that really didn't take off. You know, it didn't, it didn't really, even with the abundance of uh, maple trees, really didn't take off. But the resources for Brownsville are there, right? They're there. And so in the 1780s, there was a gentleman by the name of Jacob Yoder. And he was a merchant, a merchant. And he loaded his flatboat full of, um, pardon me, my phone's going off. Oh, you know, believe me, that uh, we have all been, I think anyone watching this has been a uh, subject to the Zoom surprises 
uh, through the past year, either dogs coming in, babies dropping in, or a phone. So you're good. So we'll pick up with uh, – It's quarantine. I'm surprised my cats aren't on. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so to get back to Jacob Yoder, uh, he, you know, he had all this pottery. He had goods. And uh, he wanted to uh, sell them in a, in a market that would buy them. And uh, he decided to take his flat boat and go to New Orleans in it. And so he traveled from Brownsville, you know, north up the Monongahela River, through Pittsburgh to the Ohio, down to New Orleans, sold his wares, sold his flat boat, bought a horse, horsed his way back to Brownsville. Hmm. Took six months. It's unbelievable now that you get on a plane and, and be in New Orleans in about four hours. So um, yeah. it's just, yeah, it's just, and when you say things like that, just gives people the, um, the scope of what a commitment was, any kind of travel was. I mean, even going downtown to get something at Provisions was probably a day and a half journey. Absolutely. Uh, well, that's why taverns are every 12 miles on the National Road, because that was a one-day trip on a horse. So you go from one tavern to the next, get your provisions until you finally made it to, uh, to Brownsville or wherever you were going. So, you know, the idea of traveling from Brownsville to Pittsburgh, which is 12 miles, would take a day, mm-hmm. basically. I mean, you had several stops you could make. And so these immigrants coming into Brownsville to get their flat boats, they were, uh, and their provisions, were, of course, driving the industry, right? And uh, in Bridgeport, which is what's now known as South Brownsville, uh, it, originally, Brownsville was three towns, uh, Bridgeport, Brownsville Borough, and West Brownsville. Um, Bridgeport and Brownsville being separated by the Cast Iron Bridge, Dunlap's Creek separating it, uh, was settled primarily by Quakers in the uh, 17, uh, 1770s, somewhere around there, large Quaker population. And, uh, you know, for another video, we could talk about how Quakerism uh, really fostered the Industrial Revolution. We'll save that for later. <laughs> uh, but there are two two Quakers of note. Um, there's Elijah Hunt and his brother Caleb. And they owned a mercantile business in Brownsville. Uh, they do the same journey Jacob Yoder did. Okay? Uh, it didn't take them quite as long, but they did the same journey. And uh, after doing that, they decide they want to start a business. Okay? So they're trying to figure out what to do. Now, during this time period, around 1811, and this is where we're going to segue into the blog post Mm -hmm. article, okay? little history, 1807, Robert Fulton builds the Claremont, okay? It's a revolutionary steamboat. Uh, It was large. It had low-pressure steam engines. It uh, was sailed around a lake in central Pennsylvania. Really revolutionized transportation, right? He really did sort of start the spark of this. Um, the blog post mentioned that he invented the steam engine, okay? Uh, let's, let's address this right now. Steam engine was, was not invented by Robert Fulton, okay? We can say the steam, steamboat was invented by Robert Fulton. Um, the steam engine had been around since the 1770s. Uh, they were British, the Newcomen engines. They were atmospheric engines, low pressure. And then after them with Bolton Watt steam engines, also low pressure, with these walking beams, the beam engines. And so these beam engines, right, Robert Fulton used those. They were low pressure. They were large machinery. 
The Claremont had two side wheels uh, positioned midships. And so he forms a company, all right? Because he also has the idea that, hey, there's money to be made in New Orleans. And so his company gets set up in Pittsburgh. Okay, and it's, it's, it's comprised of three people. Um, Fulton, his partner Livingston, who helped fund the first steamboat, and Roosevelt, who's actually related to President Roosevelt down the, down the chain. Fulton doesn't really, he may travel to Pittsburgh, but he doesn't stay there. He leaves it up to Roosevelt to do most of the work. And they build a steamboat called the New Orleans in 1811. And the New Orleans is a low-pressure steamboat. Steamboats at this time look like ships, sailing ships. They had a deep V-hull. They had a prominent bow and a stern. Paddle wheels mounted midships. And they had a sail. Okay, And their boilers were mounted uh, vertically. Okay. okay, and they had these the walking beam sort of engine, um, maybe one deck, main deck, the boiler deck, and then your pilot house. Okay, and and so Roosevelt takes his whole family, and they travel down to New Orleans, uh, you know, up the Ohio. The Ohio at the time had waterfalls by Louisville, so they had to wait for the freshets when the water was high in the, in the spring or in the fall. And on their journey, they really encounter, it's a fascinating journey, okay? If you ever get a chance to read a diary, it's absolutely fascinating because they ended up going, uh, getting near New Orleans when the New Madrid earthquake strikes. Okay? Oh, jeez. Talk about bad timing. Oh, well, just wait. <laughs> this is the most awesome story you'll ever hear. <laughs> They're traveling in their steamboat down the Mississippi River, and there's a comet in the sky that's visible, Okay. It's been visible for several days. The new Madrid earthquake hits. Earthquake hits. And it's so powerful that mud geysers shoot up along the banks of the river. Native American villages are being destroyed. They're running. And they see all this from the steamboat, right? The earthquake was also so powerful, it forced the Mississippi River to flow backwards. <laughs> Tie that with the largest squirrel migration in the history at that time where they see all these squirrels diving into the river to their deaths. Oh my goodness. You've got the makings of an apocalypse, an apocalyptic scenario that everybody on the boat, that boat thought was happening. They thought the world was ending. <laughs> Villages on fire, mud geysers, water flowing backwards, common in the sky. Largest squirrel migration happening. Has, that, that has this book been, has this diary been published in books or is it more uh, academic research? You know what? It, that's something I would love to you get my hands on. on Google Books for free. Okay. okay. <laughs> Sounds good. It's a diary. Because if anything else, if nothing else comes out of this, this conversation, I, I'm going to redo some history of the, uh, the squirrel migration. But um, you kind of, I, I was going to uh, chime in there a second when you were talking about the hulls. Um, uh, but shipbuilders in those days kind of had to be visionaries too because you might build a ship in Brownsville or Pittsburgh to get to new Orleans, but there, there's probably, you know, a half a dozen different terrain or, uh, channel, uh, considerations they had to make. What was that like? I mean, how, well, how esteemed were the designers and the engineers of their day? Well, we're going to get to that. Okay. Cause I was gonna say, cause now you think <laughs> you just see barges and everything like, well, Hey, they're going up and down the river, but you know, the, 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 without locks and dams in those days, the river, you know, yeah. wasn't travel uh, navigatable for, all the time. You had to wait for uh, high water. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, okay, so 
you had two major boats on the river at this time period. You had the flat boat and you had the keel boat. Okay. Flat boats were great because if you're an immigrant, you bought your flat boat in Brownsville, went to out west, down to Mississippi, and then you tore the flat boat apart and built your house out of it. Okay? That's amazing. Yeah. Just that ingenuity that has yeah. been lost to time. Yeah. So you had all your provisions. You you had a ready made, you know, this is this is the stuff NASA is talking about now for Mars, right? Turning their spaceships into the habitation module when they land. I mean, this was going on for for centuries already, right? So the other type of boat was the keel boat. Much more rigidly built. It was also like a boat. It wasn't flat bottomed. It had a hull that was a V hull. It could carry a large amount of tonnage. It was made for commerce, all right? It carried a big crew. You could get down the rivers on these things very easily. Flat boats only went one way, all right? The keel boat was meant to go both ways. Now, how did you do this? Well, for one thing, you had a pole. And you had men with poles that would literally pull the boat up the river. Okay? The other was called warping. And warping was by pulling tree branches along the river and pulling the boat. Okay? These guys, I mean, talk about strength <laughs> of being killed by not only that, but you had to worry about the rapids, mm -hmm. water level. You could get hung up for months, weeks, right? There were river pirates. Oh, yeah, river if you're pulling pirates. a boat, you're, you're a slow-moving target if you're, if you're trying to go upstream. I, right. I can't imagine the chaos and the fear and just the uh, frontier uh, ingenuity of just like how our, like, the people that built this country ha had to survive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I'm going to tell you the first steamboat men were flat and keelboat men because they were from that stock. They knew the river. All right. And so when the New Orleans finally gets to New Orleans, which is considered a huge success, right? Everybody is, everybody is paying attention to this, right? Its engines could not propel it against the current of the Mississippi. Okay. It couldn't get back. All right. So when Elijah and Caleb Hunt decide they want to go into the mercantile business, when Elijah has to, he has to put in the, the corporate papers, right? So he travels to Philadelphia. And when he gets to Philadelphia, he meets a man by the name of Daniel French. Daniel French was a boat builder himself, but he was more interested in engines and boilers. And French had this idea why use these low-pressure engines? Let's use a high-pressure engine, all right? And that's going to that's gonna be consequential, consequential throughout the steamboat history, right? Because we hear about explosions like Sultana killing people. There were explosions on the Monongahela River that killed people. Um, it was like having a, a, a bomb, basically, in your boat that needed a safety valve, right? <laughs> like on a water heater, yeah, right. The the overpressure valve, and that's a good way. That's a good way of ex explaining it to people that don't know uh, steam engines. Like you need like two giant hot water tanks, and you know, just think yeah. of your hot water tank in your house. You don't want to be anywhere near that if that thing were to go. Now multiply that by 
500, 1,000. That's an in, 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 in insane amount of pressure. Yeah. There are stories about hot water heaters going to people's houses and they shoot through the roof, mm -hmm. right? And so the steamboat engine was very, the steamboat boilers and engines were very much similar. And it took a long time for them to put that pressure release valve on. And even then, captains and engineers would put bricks or weights on it, <laughs> keep it closed, right? Yeah, because time is they, money. If they can go faster, they can make more trips and they can make more money. They were the, they were the 19th century truckers, mm -hmm. you know? So French said, we're going to put high, you know, he, he said, we can do, I can get you, build you a boat, Elijah, that'll go down to the Mississippi, to go down New Orleans and come back under its own power. And so Elijah said, all right, let's do it. Brownsville's a prominent town. There's a lot of money in that town. This would make a lot of money. So uh, in the spring, this is, this is around uh, 1812 or so, 1813, they uh, formed the uh, Monongahill and Ohio Steamboat Company, all right? And they also form another business called the Bridgeport uh, Woolen Mill, Okay. And I've done some research on that. Uh, I believe they just tore the building down a few years ago. That was actually the, uh, the, the mill itself, the mill house, which was across the street. It was an old, Gary, you'll probably remember this. It was an old white house across from the police station. Yeah, they just tore it down a few years ago. Yeah, it was right on the corner there. Yeah, it had all the trappings of an industrial structure. Mm -hmm. I wish, wish we could have saved it. Uh, I know uh, watching driving by every day to work, I know it didn't go down without a fight. It, it, it no. definitely, it definitely fought uh, to save its life. But uh, I, I agree with you. Like that, that house you pass it a million times, and just knowing that history, even if there was a plaque there, would be amazing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so they formed these two companies. And Daniel French actually comes to Brownsville. Um, I've been trying to locate where he lived in Brownsville. It's it's so, it's so difficult. But he lived in uh, he lived in Bridgeport. But he actually drags his steam engines and boilers over the Alleghenies, brings them into Brownsville. And so, you know, building a boat's expensive, so they get these investors involved, all right? So they get a, uh, a flat boatman, uh, a kill boatman named Israel Gray, who's also a merchant, and they get a man by the name of Henry Shreve, all right? Shreve is perhaps the most important person in the history of steamboats and steamboat building that you will find, all right? Henry Shreve was an innovator. He knew what was going on. And so in 1814, and, I, and I'll explain that. In 1814, they build the Steamboat Enterprise. What a fitting name, right? Mm -hmm. Steamboat Enterprise. <laughs> and it looks very much like the New Orleans, all right? It's got a bow, like a boat, V-hull. It's got a single deck with a pilot house on it. It has a mast. It's state-of-the-art uh, for the time, right? Yeah. And it's hardware, though, is different because the boiler, the engines kind of sit horizontally, but the, it's a stern wheel. So the, the wheel, the paddle wheel is in the back of the boat, all right? On its first journey, because when you build a steamboat in Brownsville, it went to Pittsburgh to get put in the records, okay? And so Israel Gregg is the, is the, ca the captain, the master, as they call him. Uh, Henry Shreve is the, the pilot, all right? And so, and there's some crew on board, uh, Rogers, um, um, I'm trying to think of his name, um, Ro uh, Robert Rogers, who, uh, what a hero of mine from Brownsville, 
he was a merchant. He was a potter. He made Queen Anne wear Pittsburgh. He was kind of a Renaissance guy. Owned a, a tenement house right across from uh, it's Pickers Pub now. You know the parking lot you sit in. Yeah. yeah. He owned a tenement house there. Uh, he was a real go getter, and he was on board the first this first uh, trip. And so Israel Greg um, pilots the boat up to Pittsburgh. It takes about five hours to get there, and they pilot it back down for the first sort of uh, shakedown, right? Um, afterwards, Henry Shreve becomes the captain of the, of the boat for its next, its next um, journey, which is to New Orleans, all right? And I believe the reason why they picked Shreve was because he was a flatboatman and a keelboatman, all right? He knew the river. He had been working on the river. He uh, was an entrepreneur of his own right. Um, he was a very... Very go-getter, much a go-getter. When you also probably, if there's an investment like that, you want your best guy in charge of it so you don't end up with uh, matchsticks in a a grounded (laughs) boat. Absolutely. Absolutely. You want the best guy that you can get. And Henry Shreve was it, all right? He was was born in New Jersey. His father comes from New Jersey out west to make a better life. Passes away at an early age uh, with Henry. Um, But... Henry lived in Brownsville. He lived on Front Street, okay? And uh, he will become a war hero during this journey, okay? The War of 1812 hero. And so what happens is Henry Shreve takes the Enterprise out in 1814. And the journey, they have to wait for the, high, the higher water. Remember, we got this V-bottom boat. Mm-hmm. He gets to New Orleans, all right? And a couple things happen. All right. One, the War of 1812 is going on. The enterprise is commandeered by the U.S. military. All right. I mean, this is it. This, nobody even talks about this. This, this. this could have been put in the, in the blog post. The enterprise becomes the first steamboat used in war. Anywhere. Anywhere. They, they put munitions on this thing, and they put <laughs> troops on it, and they use it as a troop carrier. And that and probably mean, was as revolutionary as in, during the Civil War with the, uh, the ironclad. So, oh, I mean, something imagine, like that lost to history. Could you imagine if you were a British soldier and you saw that thing coming down the river? Go the other way. Right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. You, you were, maybe you saw some steamboats in, the, in, the, in, in, in Britain. Uh, on the rivers, but you never saw anything like this. This is this is purely American invention. All right, the steamboat's purely American as far as the design is, and so that vessel gets used in the war. Henry Shreve ends up manning a gun, some kind of artillery piece during the battle, staving off the British. Comes a war hero. They named Shreveport after him, Shreveport, Louisiana. Um. He gets back on the boat. They give him back the boat. All right. He goes to leave, and then he gets arrested. The whole boat gets secured for violation of the patents that Fulton and Livingston and Roosevelt had. All right. So even then, there's litigation everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he's held up. The guy escapes at night. Gets back on the Enterprise. Steamers up back to Pittsburgh and then eventually back to Brownsville. All right. 
if you get rid of the middle part where he's fighting and it's being used, the journey takes about 20 days. Okay. All right. That's, that's like going from propeller aircraft to jet power, right? Six months? No, 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 no. 20 days, right? And that's going to uh, inspire uh, commerce, to trade, commerce, travel. I mean, that opens up an entire frontier, an entire industry. It, Industries. It did. It, did. It, it completely changed the way business was done uh, on the river towns. And let's face it, every town is on the river at this point. Mm-hmm. You needed water to power industry. You needed water for transportation to get your flatboat, your keelboat, your bateaus, all of that. Um, nobody wanted to, to ride that horseback on the roads. They're even more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Got, you know, natives out there, you've got um, highwaymen, you've got natural problems, right? Weather, <laughs> trees falling, and stuff Bears. like that. I mean, there's a whole gamut of stuff. So, Henry Shreve. He looks at the Enterprise, and he says, this damn thing's all wrong. It was a good boat. It made it, all right? Uh, Israel Gregg takes it again, becomes captain of it again. It it, kind of stays out of history after that, right? But but Shreve looks at it, and he says, this is all, the design is wrong for what, what we need it for. And so I want you to think, and I'm, I got some pictures for you, Gary. Okay. Um, but I want you to think about a Mississippian Mark Twain steamboat. Okay. How did we get from this ocean going looking boat with the mast and V bottom to that flat bottom and all like a layer cake of uh, decks on it to make it look like a wedding cake, right? Mm-hmm. Gingerbread and all that. Just the, the romanticized version of it, right? Kind of like the, um, uh, the boats in Pittsburgh. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Like the yep. Gateway Clipper. Gateway fleet. Clipper fleet. Yep. Yeah. Totally fake steamboats, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's Shreve. Shreve says, I'm going to redesign this vessel. All right? And so around 18, uh, I think it's 1816, maybe 1818, I'm a little fuzzy on it. But look, doesn't matter. What he did is he created a flat bottom boat. All right? He put the boilers horizontally, all right, instead of vertically. Put them horizontally. The engines are horizontal, all right? They stick out of the back. He put a boiler deck up on top of that, okay? A housing for the boilers and engine room. On top of that, he places a saloon, all right? They were main hallways, saloon. um, and, And in that, you could have staterooms, okay? They credit Henry Shreve with coming up with state rooms, like the Pennsylvania room. Okay. okay. Room, yeah. Right? He's the first one to name them, supposedly, on boats. Right? Now they're all over. It's, it's all over. It's even hotels now, right? And so on top of that deck, because he's not done yet, <laughs> he has the Texas deck. Okay. okay. And you can have your state rooms up there. Usually your captain, your, your officer stayed there stewards, pursers, okay? And on top of that was the pilot house, all right? And, you know, one day, Gary, I would love to do, I mean, my whole thing are steamboat workers. You know, who worked on these boats? Why, what was it like 
to be a worker on a steamboat in the 19th century. That's what I, that's my passion right there. That's what I wrote my dissertation on. Well, we, de- hey, we definitely have more time. Uh, we can do that as a separate show, but without a doubt. <laughs> yeah, I interviewed a bunch of people from Brownsville and local areas um, who worked on the boats, right, to get an idea. But Henry Shreve builds this boat. It's called the Washington, all right? And it is the first, what I would call, Western steamboat that reflects the Mississippian sort of design, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see there are boats that plied the Monongahela River that weren't nearly as ornate, right? They were fire. They were they were flimsy. They were um, fire traps, right? An explosion waiting to happen. But all of them had the same design: flat bottom, boilers horizontally in the boiler deck. You had uh, either stern or side wheel configuration. And you always had a deck up on top of the boilers for your, um, for your uh, crew to stay in or passengers, right? And that's all coming from the mine of Shreve, correct? All coming from the mine of Shreve, okay? Because he understood how the river was. The Mississippi River, there's some great drawings of it on how many times it's changed. Mark Twain mentioned the Mississippi River changed every day, Okay. It constantly, sandbars came and went, snags. Shreve understood if you get that boat on a, on a sandbar with a deep V hull. It's not going anywhere. Walk, okay. And, and let me tell you, so the Enterprise was the first boat built in Brownsville. It's actually like the fourth boat built on Western waters. Mm-hmm. All right. There was one before the second boat, I think it was called the, the Comet, uh, built in Pittsburgh. Never really amounted to much either. But at the same time they build the Enterprise, they build another boat called the Dispatch, mm-hmm. okay? Same sort of configuration as the Enterprise. It gets hung up on a sandbar for days. Those guys are stuck in the river, okay? And they have to wait for the water to come up. They have guys in the water. Because remember, the one thing that we didn't talk about, that we talked about a few days ago, the Monongahela River was very different then as it is now. Walk across it. Walk across it. Yeah. It's a stone bottom. I've been scuba diving in it right off the Brownsville Wharf. It's a rock bottom. You know, you see all the sediment in there? Okay, just think to yourself, it wasn't always like that. The sediment is from, you know, the 8 to 16 feet of water height that we've done with the damming mm-hmm. and the sediment coming off of the river uh, banks. But it was never supposed to be that high. It's a rock bottom river. Uh, you can walk across it in, in dry periods. There are waterfalls and rapids on it. Which uh, is just mind blowing. It is, right? It's well, let really me ask a question for, for a point of reference. Would the modern day Yakagani, would that be kind of similar to what the, the, the Monongahela was historically? Well, you, yeah, you could use that. The, the Yakagani is kind of a rough river. And actually, uh, for a period of time, there were some navigable parts of it that were maintained. Okay. For navigation. Um, but I would say that's pretty close. You could think of it like that. You can think of it like Dunlap Creek, actually. Okay. Uh, a little bit wider. Um, you know, it, the only way I can explain it is if you come to Michigan and you see a Michigan River, and then what they call a river, <laughs> and then you look at the Monongahela River, and you say, in Michigan, there are no rivers. Right, there are right, but they're like a creek. They're like Dunlap Creek or Redstone Creek. Uh, you know, 
And so the Monongahela River, which Monongahela in uh, Algonquin is river with steep falling banks, mm-hmm. was rather flat and wide. Um, it flowed north. It flows north, which means it was very easy to get to points west. Henry Shreve builds the boat, um, the Washington. He, and see, this is the complexity that they couldn't capture in the blog post, right? They couldn't capture all of this. And, and instead, they kind of glossed over it, right? Yeah. Um, and you need, the, you need the, the background information for the, just to build the story. Because if you just say, you know, in a, in a post, Henry Shreve took a boat to New Orleans. Well, yeah. you've talked for 15, 20 minutes about, like, you know, telling stories about, you know, Boats getting stuck, uh, you know, yeah. men pulling trees. Well, I, mean, I mean, nuance. You, it's but the, the thing nuance is, like, you read, you read the blog post. Yeah, you read the blog post, you, you think these, these incidents happen in a vacuum, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the problems with history, probably as it's taught, but that these events happen in these capsular sort of unrelated events, right? Yeah. And that's not Henry, the case. Henry Shreve, Elijah. So, okay, ultimately what happens is... Elijah and Caleb Hunt and Daniel French, they're not making any money, all right? Because they're, they're not very good businessmen, ultimately. The woolen mill closes down, their boat company dissolves, the Monongahela, um, and Ohio Steamboat Company basically dissolves. They're just not very good at it. Maybe they were good at boat building and should have stuck with that. <laughs> Right? Or maybe they were good at the woolen stuff and they should have had Henry Shreve doing the, the steamboat stuff. It, it's lost to history, but they didn't do very well. They, they go out pretty quick. But what ha- happens in Brownsville is, is that as soon as you have the steamboat company, then you have uh, Jacob Bowman, all right? Not the original Jacob Bowman, the son. Uh, one of the things that we should talk about one day is how you go take the castle tour. And they talk about Jacob Bowman as if he's one person. When there's like several Jacob Bowman's. Several Jacob Bowman's <laughs> throughout time doing different things. But um, he builds a boatyard. You have John Cock boatyard. You have the uh, Pringle boatyard, all right? And Brownsville's landscape is different, right? We see a walled city, walled mm-hmm. to the river. And we think to ourselves, how could they have built boats here, right? People have... You know, when I excavated the, the uh, um, Snowden Vulcan Iron Machine Works, somebody came up to me and actually said to me, I don't ever remember there being a foundry there. Well, that's probably true. Yep. You know, it was done and buried in 1890. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> but it had started earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the reason was it was spurred on by this, this industry in Brownsville. Um, and it's directly tied to the steamboat era that John Snowden, you know, he's making all these stoves in Brownsville. And William Hogg, the famous business guy, is pumping money into him to build the foundry um, as an investor. And, and John Snowden builds steamboats. He builds boilers. He builds engines. Um, you know, and let me tell you, there's one John Snowden engine left in this world. Where, where is it located? It is located in Kansas City, Missouri. Okay. There was a boat, the Arabia. Okay. Some of your viewers probably already recognize it. 
I was hoping you would touch on it because it's an amazing story in itself. It is. Do you know the story, Gary? I know the basics. Okay. Treasure hunters in the 80s, early 90s, hearing tales of the steamboat wreck, go searching in the Mississippi River by Kansas City, Missouri. And they've come across a farmer who said, well, you know, I was plying my field and I hit this piece of metal. Right? That piece of metal was the top of the of the stack of this steamboat, the Arabia, sticking out of the ground. And, and so think they about that. all the way around. But I was going to say, think about what Mark just said. He was plowing a field. Uh, not, yeah, not, that's how, yeah. yeah. That's how much the river moved, right? And so they excavate this boat, which was built in Brownsville, Steamboat Arabia, 1856, built in Brownsville. And its engines made at the John Snowden Sons Foundry in Brownsville. Its boilers, they're not sure. They think they might have been made in Pittsburgh. Because in the middle period here, in the 1850s, when these boats are, are being built, what you would do is you would build the hulls in like Axton and Pringle Yard, John Cockett Yard. And you would float the hulls to say John Snowden, and he would outfit all the machinery, right? The pumps, the engines, the boilers, maybe the boilers. Maybe he was he didn't do boilers at that period where he's like, well, I've got too many engines. Mm-hmm. We'll send the boat to Pittsburgh because in Pittsburgh, that's where you get all of your accoutrement, all of your staterooms, your furniture, your fine wood cuttings. You would get your steamboat boiler placed in there. You would have your interiors done. And, and industry was different back then than it is now, right? There's, com- there's competition, mm-hmm. but it wasn't unheard of to have expert boat builders in Brownsville go work in Pittsburgh for a few months on a boat. So this we'll industry back. we're talking about is basically a 40-mile industry from Brownsville to Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. All, Elizabeth, mm-hmm. Bell Vernon, they're building – California's building boats, right? There were steamboats built in California um, at their boat yards. And so it's, it's, a, it's uh, you know, a very interconnected uh, industry, right? They're not out to bury one another. Mm-hmm. They're out to help each other grow, okay? And through this whole time period, you have, which if you ever get to the Arabian Museum, I'll, I'll send you a picture of it. Okay. Uh, the, the John Stone and Son engine has this really cool Greek god face on it. All right. Nobody knows what it is. It's fascinating. But it, it, it's stamped in it in the cast iron, cast it into the cast iron. But that's only one that has survived. And when I went there to the museum, the docents, day after day, have been he- hearing about Brownsville, right? And so I told them where I was from and what I was doing. I was, a re- I was a researcher, and I needed some documentation. The, the docent got me, and she's like, hold on. i got to get everybody else. And they gathered <laughs> all these people around. And they're like, this is Mark Henshaw. He's from Brownsville, where they built the Steamboat Arabia. And I had people ask me questions like, what's it like there? Are they still building boats? Is there museums, the industry? And then you tell them the truth and you just see them bow their heads. Like I just, you know, told them you're all fired, you know, like (laughs) sad, right? The the, the room darkened a bit. That's what something, uh, I I was going to break in for a second. That's why I think it's so important. We, we, you know, when having these ideas, these talks, because if people, if no one's telling the history, the history goes away. Just in this, we've been talking for about a half hour now, 
and we've connected Brownsville to New Orleans, Shreveport, Louisiana, Kansas City, um, squirrel migration into the Mississippi, one of the largest earthquakes in human history. Yeah. And that's just, you know, in a, in a four, 20, 25 minute period I was talking, but also uh, historically, that's only probably in about what, a 75 year period that we're talking to. And Mark, uh, just for a point of reference for our viewers at home, um, that some American, most of them are going to be familiar with Brownsville, some may not, but for point of reference, where would these shipyards be? Like you referenced that, you know, if you cross the bridges in Brownsville, you see the walls from the, that are holding up the, the train tracks and, you know, from the, the former lock and dam system. But where, you know, if we're looking from the Lane Brain Bridge to the left, all the way down past where um, the baseball field is to the, in West Brownsville, like, is that about where the area we're talking about? Yeah, well, uh, the John Snow and Son Falcon Iron Machine Works, which built steamboats and boilers and engines, was located right behind the Flatiron Building, all right, which is now right beside the Union Station Building, which didn't exist at the time. Um, the John Pringle and Sons Boatyard was located at the Bridgeville, or Bridgeville, the Bridgeport uh, Wharf, which would have been down by, uh, yeah, I guess it would have been somewhere down along Lock Five Wall down in that area because where Fiddle's restaurant is now today was the Herbertson uh, foundry on the same block as uh, Fiddle's and it produced steamboat engines and boilers there. Uh, James Herbertson, uh, he had worked in the foundry uh, under, uh, as an apprentice under Snowden. But when we look at the landscape of the, of the town, right, we had the railroad tracks. Those railroad tracks didn't come into Brownsville until 1902. Okay. Okay. So before that, Brownsville was very much open to the river, all right, with gently sloping banks to the river. A That's mind-blowing. That's just yeah. mind-blowing. Right? It looks like a walled city, like I mentioned before. Yeah. So it was very open to the river. And in 1856, okay, 1850s, the railroad comes as far as Cumberland, Maryland. Okay. All right? There are protests in Brownsville and the National Road to keep the railroad out. Wow. Because it would be jeopardizing the huge industry. Because where are they going to put the railroad? Yeah. Along the river, right? And they're going to seal the town off. Well, I think, I think that Pringle understood this, right? He's one of the largest book producers in Brownsville. So he moves across the river to where Dugman's Beer Distributor now stands, okay? Because remember, we had the covered bridge going across, mm -hmm. right? The Intercounty Bridge, it's there now was covered at one time, okay. horses crossed and things like that. And, and Pringle, he opens his business up right on the banks of the Mon, right where Dukeman's Beer Distributor is and his ice house um, in that area, okay? And so a lot of these other, like John Cock, who started off in Bridgeport, moves over to West Brownsville. And he moves over, you know, if you're headed down the Intercounty Bridge and Dukeman's is on the left, John Cox would have been slightly down the river on the right. Okay. okay? Um, John Snowden's son's out of business by the time the railroad comes in. All right. Their, uh, their foundry gets converted to tenement structures for coal mining. Okay. But what happens is the railroad comes in, it's completely walls off the, walls off the, the town, right? Completely cutting off Brownsville from its once extremely lucrative river resource right, that built it. And so that's sort of the transition, right? People talk about Brownsville dying all the time. Brownsville almost died many times. 
in the 1870s, okay? And the reason is in the 1870s, the frontier is settled. They call it closed. There's <laughs> papers that say the front, Western frontier is closed. We've settled all of it. And those industries that, that fueled that immigration boom, your nail factories, your foundries, your mercantile businesses, they're done. Mm-hmm. They're done, okay, 1870s. But at the same time, the first coal mines open up, all right? John Snowden's son, William E. Hogg and his son, they open up coal mines in the 1870s, all right? If you look at the graph in coal mine production or coal production, bushels being sent from Brownsville to Pittsburgh on the river, it becomes this long, steady increase, all right? Nobody's pushing that stuff in the 1850s, all right? The boats were using coal. They had coaling barges that would come up alongside them, and they'd get cold from that if they were, you know, somewhere. But most of your, most of your mining was, wasn't being done in Brownsville or the, the region there. It was being done north, mm-hmm. okay? Now, to say that Brownsville shot itself in the foot by going from this multiple, multidisciplinary, multi-versatile economy of shops and, and, and such in manufacturing to being reliant on one thing, coal mining, right? One thing. Mm-hmm. And once that was gone, what do you get? There's no other things to fall back on. You get decay, right? Yeah. You get urban decay, post-industrialization seeps in, uh, people move out. Lane Main Bridge gets constructed, just guts the market district. The oldest market district west of the Appalachian Mountains gets gutted by the Lane Main Bridge. And you right? beat me to the question because I was going to ask, could you see a parallel between what was happening when the railroads went into that industry to what happened whenever the highways and Lane Main Bridge went in in the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s? Yeah, and, and, and for the steamboat industry, the railroad becomes really a, a dogged um, competitor, okay? There are documents to show that the Intercounty Bridge, when they built it, which is a railroad design, right? Mm-hmm. It looks just like the railroad bridge um, down by Albany, mm-hmm. okay? They built it too low. <laughs> and they built it too low for a reason. They didn't want the steamboats competing with coal transportation that the railroads were doing. And I'm going to send you a picture of a steamboat at the Brownsville Wharf with its stacks cantilevered okay, so that it could get underneath the bridge. Wow. Right? They built all the bridges in Pittsburgh too low. Some boats which were huge, like the Columbia, okay? They can only do their trade, as they say, their, their travels between certain points because they couldn't get under the bridges. Their decks were too high. They didn't even have the option of cantilever. Jeez, a whiz. The decks were too high, all right? And this happens all the way through the Ohio, all the way down the Mississippi, okay? Bridges being built too low to stop the steamboat industry. Steamboat industry can carry acres and acres of coal, all right, mm-hmm. and a lot of it. That's competition to the railroad. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, the other thing that is going on with this whole thing is that you're getting better roadways too, which are which are competing with the steamboat industry. Um, instead of being a mode of major mode of transportation, cars are introduced, right? Horseless carriages. So there's a lot of pressure on the boat, boat industry that uh, 
it's just out of their control because technological change, right? Mm -hmm. Technological change. Um, and so, you know, I write about this stuff. I wrote my dissertation on it because it's fascinating. Uh, the people who work there towards the end. Um, but to get an idea, you can see their lives on the river is a direct correlation to those in the 1830s, 1840s. The technology didn't change, right? Sure. You had some boats that had these automatic augers for coal, right? Mm -hmm. Self-coaling, whatever. Didn't change. Um, captains at one time were celebrities in town. You read the newspapers like the Clipper or the Telegraph, and and when a when a steamboat captain left Brownsville and went to Pittsburgh, they wrote about it. Mm -hmm. Or when they came into town, they wrote about it. Um, a steamboat captain in the 1870s could could be could own his own boats. He might own some stock in a bank. Uh, I'm thinking of Michael. Um, I'm thinking of Michael Cox on on Church Street, who I studied. Um, Michael Armistad. Uh, um, Michael. Armacost Cox. He was a, a boat captain. He was a uh, investment banker in the Monongahela Bank. He was sat on their board. He owned stock and coal companies. He was very diversified, right? Mm -hmm. And if we compare that to somebody in the 1850s, they were just steamboat captains. Yeah. Right? They made all their money uh, by doing, doing and helping uh, with the industry, right? Mm hmm Maybe they got better things because they could they had some social capital. They could bargain or barter. Barter. Hey, yeah, look, yeah. I'll carry your <laughs> I'll carry your uh, cargo for a discount on shingles for my house, right? So stuff like that. That kind of goes away as capitalism kind of creeps in a little bit more and replaces the frontier economy that was going on in the eighteen fifties. Because remember, eighteen seventies frontiers closed. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so the, the the industry in town is really. Uh, you know, the National Road was trying to put out something to spark interest. And I, I believe it did that. Mm -hmm. I believe that now we can have a conversation about it. Um, you know, we can talk about every building we've lost in Brownsville, yeah. having some connection to some industry or to some famous person and uh, mourn its loss, right? Yeah. And this definitely could be a, a jumping off point for everything, because like you said, at the very least, you know, it, it Spurring this conversation, I know on that the message that we both saw. I mean, that wasn't just one or two responses. There was, I mean, there was a healthy conversation back and forth, and it was all fairly positive. And and, and as we mentioned before, like you know, these stories need to be told, or else they're yeah. just going to be forgotten. And you know, Brownsville being one of the historical, uh, just from a historical standpoint, point is interesting. Let alone the fact that we both you know grew up there and you know have heavily heavy ties to the area. I mean, that makes it interesting as well. But just as, you, as we talked about uh, a little bit ago, you know, we've, we've touched, you've touched on connections between New Orleans, Shreveport, Kansas City, um, five or six different in industries converging right, you know, downtown. It's, it's just amazing how pivotal, you know, Brownsville and, and, and you know, the, to some extent, the, the, the Brownsville area and greater area had in how this country became to be settled and industry was, you know, invented, invented and, and prospered in Brownsville. Well, the other thing, we didn't even talk about the lock and dam system. <laughs> I mean, if it wasn't for Brownsville, there'd be no lock and dam system on the Monongahela River. I mean, they championed it. Um, oh, but one final point. So, mm -hmm. you know, the railroad gets held up in Cumberland, right, in 1856 because the people on the National Road and the people are, uh, you know, complaining about it. They don't want it to come in. It's going to destroy business. But when it comes in 1802, 
the people are rejoicing, right? Because it's bringing new business in. And there are editorials in the newspaper of some of these business owners who are going, you know what? We told you, you know, 20 years ago, this was going to be a good thing. And you guys stopped it. Now you're 20 years behind where they could have been. Yeah. Now there's the famine period. Because, see, the railroad was already in in West Brownsville. All right. The railroad was already set back Mm -hmm. because West Brownsville sits on a major floodplain, a flat, wide floodplain. The railroad was already set back so that those boatyards could just come in. They had no threat of being walled off. There was no inkling that they would get, you know, cut off from, from doing that. Yeah, and I know so, in one of our future uh, future talks, I want to talk a little bit about like because I know there's still some historical businesses and or not businesses, but uh, historical structures on the West Brownsville side that you can still drive by today. And you know, if you drive by and you don't know what you know amazing and things happen, and you know, <laughs> it's just unbelievable some of the history that you like in the with, you know being in cars and you know this fast paced world of ours. You just drive by and don't even realize that oh that was a major point of industry. Oh, that was a major point of commerce. Oh, there was a glass factory there that, you know, uh, oh. championed a new version of uh, uh, glass making. Yeah, there was a glass factory in Brownsville. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's mind-blowing, right? <laughs> it's mind-blowing. I took students when I worked at Cal there on a field trip down to a place called Mitchell Hollow, which is down on 2nd Street, uh, right where Hollow Road goes up. There's a little hollow down there mm-hmm. on, on the one side. And we were looking at what appears to be a steam engine mount. Okay. okay the remnants of a steam engine mount there. And uh, um, Bill Tracy took me down there and his brother. He's like, what would it be doing here? And you look at the 1856 map and there's a colliery there, a coal mine. Wow. Um, <laughs> that was supplying Brownsville with some coal. A, a little personal sort of family-run coal mine, right? Guy needs steam, steam yeah. engine to pump out the water. And there was the mount. It sits there in the woods, alone, right? In an area nobody even thinks about, Mitchell Hollow. Who even thinks about that? Yeah, I mean, you drive by it once in a blue moon. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. So there's these little little tidbits of history all over that area. That just, you know, there, there's even someone who contacted me looking for the handguard, Okay. The handguard was built in the 1750s by Trent and Grist as they were uh, coming across um, the Nemecolon Path into the, the French area. We were occupied with French-occupied area. Mm-hmm. And they built the handguard, which was a, a munitions depot, a fort, called more like a, 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 a log structure that held munitions and ammunition, a storehouse, right? And it gets burned in the French and Indian War in the 1750s. And it sat at the mouth of Redstone Creek. Okay. You know, and so we've had that conversation. We've had the conversation with locals about Fort Bird. You know, where was Fort Bird? You know, there's competing, there's competing talk of being at the castle. I don't believe that for a minute. Uh, Fort Bird, I mean, uh, Colonel Bird's diary says it was on a low bank of the Monongahela River. That's definitely not where the castle is. <laughs> no, it, it, I believe it was down by where Carts or GC Murphy's was. Okay, um, right there. Because why are you going to porter your boats? You know, you have canoes and bateaus and stuff. All the merchandise you're going to have to porter it up to the. You're not going to take them up a 200 foot hill. And then if you stand at the top of the hill, what kind of military site do you have up or down the river? 
You yeah. have no sight distance. It'd be very easy to be ambushed because people come right up the cliff and you're surprised. That's right. That's right. So Bird wasn't stupid. He put it at the low bank, like he says in a diary, because he also says in his diary that there were saw pits across on Nemecolon Creek. Mm-hmm. And Nemecolon Creek is Dunlap Creek. That's okay. the original name of it. And that's where they, that's where they used the logs for, the, for Fort Bird. So I'm fairly confident it's, it's underneath carts or Murphy's. Or, or yeah, I mean, based on his diary, that's pre- without a map, that's about as close as you can get to drawing a circle on a map as you can yeah. <laughs> with his description. Well, the other thing is, you know, the fort was around in the early 19th century. Okay. Talk about something that gets lost. They used to have festivals there. Michael Cressup, who was a famous pioneer, built the first, um, well, legend has it, built the first uh, shingled roofed house west of the Appalachian Mountains would go to Fort Bird all the time for provisions. Um, so it was there. It's, it was up in the ni- early 19th century. It may still have been up during the steamboat era. And may one last – or go ahead. I'm sorry, Mark. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to make one point about passionate. Michael Cressup. we passionate about this stuff. <laughs> Is that, it, uh, was Michael Cressup uh, – uh, he founded Cressup Town, Maryland, correct? Well, you know, was, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Okay. The only reason I know about Crest Tom, Maryland, a good friend of mine uh, lives there, and um, I'd like to have something to hang over his head. <laughs> oh, well, you know what? We could always look that up. He was a um, – they say he uh, murdered an Indian chief uh, and started Lord Dunmore's War in 1775, which was sort of like a – I don't know what you want to call like a precursor to the Revolutionary War. Uh, but they, they think that's false. Okay. That's false. So, well, I think but, that's a yeah. good place to the murder uh, and starting wars is probably a good place to uh, draw this conversation to a close. But I, I sure. you know, we're definitely going to have more of this because uh, these stories need to be told. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we've, gotten, we've gone into industry, we've gone into international uh, murder and war starting, we've gone into squirrel migrations. Um, but, Mark, yeah. thank you for taking some time. Um, Maybe Lord Dunmore's war was 1770. I'm having a little bit of a, a break here, but we'll we'll give you we'll, we'll give you a few weeks you gotta, to uh to get that right. You gotta give me a pass on that one. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the 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 stuff you've said before, like this entire uh, show, you're you're good for one little one little slip up. So okay, um, well, thanks. We'll I give appreciate you, that. And especially like I said, if we can keep getting the the the, the setting the record straight and, and talking about the fascinating story that is Brownsville and Western PA, like that, I think that is a great service to everyone. Yeah, I love this, Gary. Thanks for having a platform here that uh, we can talk about this and, and get people interested and maybe get them out in the streets a little bit, helping, you know, brighten up the town and, and really taking a look at what's the history that's around. I like the sound of that. So uh, thanks once again to my guest, Mark Henshaw, today. And um, we'll see you next time on A Conversation With. The preceding program was a joint collaboration between California University Television, Cal Times Newspaper, and WCAL Radio. Please subscribe to the CUTV and Friends podcast for updated shows.